We're returning to 2 Corinthians tonight. We're up to chapter 11. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11:1 1 through 12:13 is the section that's often known as Paul's uh, fool's speech, in which he argues further against his accusers, the false apostles whom he ironically calls super apostles. Uh, we'll look tonight at the first 15 verses of that larger section. And so please do listen carefully to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. This is God's word for us this evening. The Apostle Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least, in the least inferior to these super-apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is God's word. As always seems to be the case in our text from 2 Corinthians, a lot is going on in this passage. Paul here is tying together a number of topics that he hit on earlier in his letter. In the first paragraph of our text, one theme that comes up is how Paul's gospel and vision of Jesus differs from that of the false teachers in Corinth. Back in January 2016, we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, and we talked about the relationship between glory and the cross that was present in Paul's gospel, but that was minimized and maybe even absent in the presentation of the false teachers. In the second paragraph, Paul deals again with the Corinthian suspicion that he doesn't love them. Something that we saw come up in chapter 1 of this letter back in July of 2015. And so, themes from earlier in the letter are coming together in this passage, themes that we have discussed before. More specifically here, though, they're combining in connection with what the false teachers are doing. And Paul is connecting them to the question of whom those false teachers really serve. 
In the beginning of our passage, Paul warns the Corinthians of the danger posed by the devil as he reminds them of the story of the deception of Eve. And then at the end of our passage, Paul asserts that the false teachers in Corinth are actually servants of Satan. We're going to consider tonight how that theme fits with everything else that's going on in this passage. What does it mean that these teachers in Corinth were servants of Satan? And even if they were, what does it have to do with us? What are we supposed to do with a claim like that? And to help us think that through, I want to start with a story tonight. But before I do that, I have to sort of apologize for the story. It's a story from uh, the 1960s show, The Twilight Zone. Most of you know that I enjoy uh, some forms of science fiction. I try to regulate how often they show up in my sermons. I do. I checked. Uh, my last Twilight Zone illustration was a healthy two years ago. The one before was four years ago, so I'm spacing them out. But that said, the last time I preached on Second Corinthians, I told a story from Doctor Who, which is also sci-fi, so all I can do at this point is apologize. As Paul says, maybe you will bear with me in a little foolishness. I don't think it'll be too out there tonight. But the episode I want to talk about is called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. It aired in 1960 and was written by Rod Serling. And the story takes place on a typical early 1960s suburban street called Maple Street on a late Saturday afternoon. People are working in the yard, kids are playing, people are going about their business. And then at 6.43 p.m., there's a bright flash of light in the sky. People come outside and look up at the sky and wonder what it was, but most of them assume that it's nothing to worry about. But shortly after the flash, everyone on Maple Street has their power go out. And then, when one person tries to make a phone call, they find that the phones aren't working either. And they start coming out into the street and talking about it. They're confused because it's a beautiful, sunny day out. Doesn't seem that weather would be causing the problem. One person tries to get a news update on a portable radio, but oddly enough, that isn't working either. And so one man decides that he'll drive into town to see what's going on there. Only when he tries, his car won't start. And now people start to get confused and concerned. Two of the men, Steve and Charlie, decide that they're going to walk into town to find out what's going on there. But as they begin to walk down the street, a 14-year-old boy, Tommy, calls out to them. Mr. Brand, he says, you better not. Why not? asks Steve. They don't want you to, replies Tommy. When Steve asks what Tommy means, Tommy shares his conviction that the flash of light overhead was an alien spaceship and that those on board were causing the outages and that they didn't want anyone to leave. He earnestly explains to all the neighbors gathered there that that's how it always happens in the stories that he reads about alien invasions. The neighbors respond with incredulity and a little bit of annoyance. Steve gently explains to Tommy that he'll go to town and he'll see that there's nothing as crazy as aliens causing all this. And they turn and they start to walk away when Tommy calls out again. Mr. Brand, please don't leave, he says. Everyone at this point starts to get uncomfortable. You might not be, even be able to get to town, he says. It was that way in the story. Nobody could leave. Nobody except except the people they'd sent down ahead of time. 
They looked just like humans, and it wasn't until the ship landed that, and getting self-conscious, Tommy stops talking. But then a few adults quietly encourage him to keep going. That was the way they prepared things for the landing, he says. They sent four people, a mother and a father and two kids who looked just like humans, but weren't. And now everyone starts to get weirdly quiet. One man tries making a joke about it, and people laugh, but it's sort of a nervous laughter. And they all start eyeing each other suspiciously. Just then, the car of one of the men, named Les, suddenly starts on its own in the driveway. And the group stares and begins asking questions. Why is his car starting when no one else's does? As they murmur among themselves, one of the men comments that he noticed that Les didn't seem too concerned about the flash of light in the sky earlier. It's almost as if he wasn't really surprised by it. People want to know what's going on with Les, and so the group rushes over to his house. And as they get there, the car suddenly turns off. And Les is standing there, looking at his car, confused. The people, though, are more focused on him. They start to question him. And as they do, the car starts again, and their questions get more frantic. One woman notes how she has looked out her window in the middle of the night, and she's seen Les standing outside, staring at the sky. It's as if you were waiting for someone, she says, as if you were looking for something. Les is confused by their accusations and begins to get angry over all the suspicion he's receiving. It's getting dark at this point, and people begin to take posts standing around Les's property, watching him. Steve urges everyone to stop keeping watch and go home. He tells them this is crazy. He tells them to leave Les alone. But as he says that, people begin to turn on him. One person comments on how he heard that Steve has been building a radio in his basement. Charlie, a man who had earlier taken the lead in accusing Les, now starts to ask Steve questions. What kind of radio are you working on? He demands to know. I've never seen it. Neither has anyone else. Who do you talk to on that radio set? And who talks to you? Steve looks at him with frustration. I'm surprised at you, Charlie, he says. How come you're so dense all of a sudden? Who do I talk to? I talk to monsters from outer space. I talk to three-headed green men who fly over us in what look like meteors. Charlie responds to Steve's sarcasm with further accusations. The argument continues and gets more and more heated when they suddenly hear footsteps in the distance. Everyone gets quiet and huddles together. They see an outline of a man in the dark at the end of the street, slowly walking towards them. They begin to panic. Tommy blurts out that it must be the monster. A man runs and grabs his shotgun from his house. Steve takes the gun away and asks him what on earth he's thinking of doing. And that's when Charlie grabs the gun, points it at the figure, and fires. The figure collapses, and the crowd runs to see who it is. And they find it's Peter Van Horn, their neighbor, and he's dead. One of them remembers then that he had walked down the street to see what was going on with the power on other streets. Charlie, of course, starts to panic over what he's done. He begins to defend himself, and then suddenly the lights to his house go back on while everyone else's are still out. And people begin to accuse Charlie. They ask if maybe Pete Van Horn had information about Charlie. They ask whether that's why Charlie was so quick to fire at him. 
Everyone then turns on Charlie, and as they do, Charlie declares that it's really Tommy, the 14-year-old boy, who's the monster, and then the lights go on in someone else's house, and the scene descends into chaos. Each person's accusing someone else of being the monster, the threat to everyone there. As the accusations fly, people run home and grab guns or bricks or rocks. The camera at that point looks down on Maple Street, and we see people running all over the place, back and forth. We hear screaming and breaking glass. We hear gunshots. The street has become a war zone. The camera shot then zooms out further and further until we see, standing on a hillside, looking down on the street, two beings who are standing under a flying saucer, one of them holding an electronic device. Understand the procedure now, asks the first one. Just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers, throw them into darkness for a few hours, and then just sit back and watch this pattern. And this pattern is always the same, asks the second one. With few variations, says the first. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. And all we need to do is sit back and watch. Then I take it this place, the second one says, this Maple Street is not unique. The first shakes his head. By no means, he says. Their world is full of Maple Streets, and will go from one to the other and let them destroy themselves. One to the other, one to the other. And then they reboard their flying saucer and fly off. What we see in this story, what I want to draw our attention to, is how... Uh, the beings in this flying saucer made the residents of Maple Street their unwitting servants. They made them a means to the ends of their own destruction. And they did this by guiding them in such a way that their confusion and doubts were redirected as exaggerated false accusations against those around them. In our text tonight, Paul is warning that the same thing is going on in the Corinthian church. First, he warns them that Satan is tempting the people of the Corinthian church. He does this in verse 3, as we said, by comparing the situation that they're in with the story of Eve and the serpent. Then we're led to ask, how is Satan tempting them? Obviously, there's no talking serpent who's doing it in their case. And in verse 15, Paul tells us that it's through the false teachers. But a few questions begin to emerge as we think about this. The first is it's worth asking whether or not the false teachers think of themselves as servants of Satan. Do they know who it is that they're serving? Do they really think that their claim to being Christians is just a front? Is it really just a lie, a sort of marketing technique by which they can carry out their real mission? In some sense, we don't know for sure, but there's really no reason that we're given in Paul's letter to assume that the people that Paul's referring to are intentionally serving Satan, that they made some decision to do that. It would seem that they were actually unintentional servants of Satan. But that leads to a second question, which is this. In what way are they serving Satan? How are they his instruments? Satan, of course, attacks people in a variety of ways. He, he tempts us with sinful pleasure. He tries to deceive us. He tries to direct persecution towards God's people, just to name a few. Is this, though, what the false teachers were primarily doing? N.T. Wright, commenting on this passage, helpfully reminds us that another important role that Satan plays is that he is the accuser. He is the one who accuses God's people. 
Sometimes he uses the truth to accuse them, but other times he's happy to use lies to accuse them as well. And isn't that exactly the problem that Paul is dealing with in this portion of 2 Corinthians? Paul is having to deal with the fact that the false teachers are heaping accusations upon him. In our text tonight alone, we see that they have accused him of having, for instance, inferior authority. They talk about that in verse 5. They accuse him of having inferior speaking abilities in verse 6. They accuse him of having some sort of sinister and selfish motive behind not accepting funds from the Corinthian church. He talks about that in verses 7 and 8. And they accuse him of not loving the Corinthians, which he addresses in verse 11. Accusation upon accusation upon accusation, and that's just in this short passage. The letter up to this point has already dealt with even more accusations that they've made. And so as we come back to that second question, how are these false apostles serving Satan? The most obvious answer seems to be that they're serving in his work as the accuser. They're serving as his proxy accusers, as it might be. It's also worth noting the form of the accusations they're leveling. We might call them, uh, as I've said, exaggerated false accusations. They find some small point of disagreement or confusion. They interpret interpret it with as much suspicion as possible. They try to inflate it with as many sinister motives as they can imagine might be behind it. And then they present the results as an accusation. And so Paul's decision, for example, not to receive payment, is interpreted suspiciously. It's reinterpreted as a slap in the face rather than the gift that it was intended to be. And then motives are speculated until we get to the conclusion in verse 11. They conclude that Paul must not really love the Corinthians. This is how they build these exaggerated false accusations. And it's the same pattern we see in that story about Maple Street. An oddity, and unexplained happening, a quirk, whether it's a starting car or a man who likes to stargaze or one who likes to build ham radios, each thing is interpreted as suspiciously as possible. Sinister motives are read into it, and suddenly the man is suspected, literally in that case, of being a monster. I think we see something of that pattern around us, don't we? This pattern of suspicion and this tendency towards exaggerated false accusation, it fills our public discourse, and far too often it fills our personal relationships as well. Before we get to that, before we get to what it looks like in our lives, I want to say two other things about it. First, I just want to clarify how this idea of exaggerated false accusation fits into the topic of real and necessary accusations. More specifically, that none of what we see in this text or what we've said about it so far tonight goes against anything that we discussed this morning about the calling to confront sin. The warning we find here about exaggerated false accusations, if it's understood rightly, isn't even really in tension with the call to uproot sin. Actually, the two concepts go together quite well. They sort of need each other. Because the problem with exaggerated false accusations is not that they're a good thing that's being overdone. It's not too much vigilance or taking sin too seriously. The problem is that it's misdirected suspicion that actually leaves one open to real attacks from real predators. That often neglects the real things that are threatening a community. In the story about Maple Street, there was actually a real enemy the creatures who had come in the flying saucer. The people's false accusations were not just wrong in and of themselves, 
they were actually a diversion from the real threat, where they really needed to be worried. And in Corinth, the false accusations against Paul are not only wrong in themselves, but they distract the people from the real threat, which is the false teachers. Paul points, in, Paul points out that they are not only wary of him, but at the same time, he says in verse 4, that they tolerate the false apostles quite well. Their accusatory attitude towards an ally keeps them from recognizing the true threat that's in their midst. And so it often is with us. False accusations, more often than that, are a diversion from the real issue. We go to war with each other over exaggerated false accusations, over inconsequential things, while tolerating real sin and rot in our lives or our communities. And the devil is quite pleased when he gets us to do this. And so far from reducing our war on sin, turning from false accusations is a necessary step if we're to fight the actual threats that we face in life. So we see negatively the danger of giving in to false accusations, of following the example of Corinth or Maple Street, of becoming unwitting servants of Satan. How do we combat that tendency? What does it look like to do something different? And we might be helped by looking at Paul in our text. If we look at Paul instead of the naive Corinthians who embraced false accusations, we see Paul actually seeming to anticipate and preemptively guard himself against the temptations of the accuser. I think we see something of this in verses 7 through 11. As we look at Paul's refusal to receive money from the Corinthians, we can often find ourselves confused. We can ask what's going on with that. We can wonder, did Paul think that it was wrong for pastors to be paid by their congregations? And we know that he didn't think that. Elsewhere, he strongly argues that ministers should be provided for financially by those they serve. Well, then we might start to wonder, was this a pride thing for Paul? And it didn't seem to be that either. When Paul speaks of his boasting in this passage and elsewhere, he means something more like confidence, not a sinful pride. And we know from Paul's reflections elsewhere that he seems to have a good sense, a good knowledge of where his struggles with pride are. If that's what was going on here, we might expect that he would be aware. And so what is it then? Why won't Paul accept payment for his work in Corinth? The full answer isn't really spelled out for us. He talks a little bit about why he won't do it now in this text, but he doesn't give us the reason for his original motive. But even as we consider it, a few reasons why it might be wise for Paul not to accept payment begin to come out. And he Wright points out first that Paul may have enacted this policy to prevent anyone from falsely accusing him of trying to get rich from preaching the gospel. As a traveling preacher, Paul might have been more vulnerable to such an accusation than maybe a permanent local pastor would be. And so it seems plausible that Paul anticipates that possibility and preemptively guards against it. Second, along with it, I might add that, that Paul may have realized himself that he could be tempted to accuse those he ministered to over how well they financially supported him while he served them. But Paul seems to know that in the past he cared far too much about what other people thought of him. And money is an all-too-typical way in which people assess how much they're valued. Maybe Paul knew his own vulnerability and how he would accuse the church in his heart if they failed to support him generously while he was there. Maybe anticipating his own vulnerability, his own tendency towards exaggerated false accusations, Paul may have forgone receiving payment from the people he was ministering to. 
A third possibility that Wright brings up is to suggest that Paul may have been concerned that if an individual supported him, he would feel in some way beholden to them. Either they might be tempted to accuse Paul of betraying them if Paul taught something they didn't like, or Paul might have accusingly suspected them of supporting him in order to control him. Again, if that was a concern Paul anticipated, he may have forgone such pay as a way to preemptively guard against these accusations. We don't have it all spelled out for us. My suspicion is that there are a number of reasons why Paul wasn't accepting money from the Corinthians. But I also suspect that some of these were the reasons that factored in. Paul lived his life with full knowledge that Satan, that the accuser, was real. He knew that Satan would be trying to attack him in any way he could. And he knew to anticipate those attacks and preemptively guard against those temptations, he would have to take action. So the question for us to consider is, do we do those things? Do we anticipate such attacks as well? Are we on guard as Paul was? Or are we naive and vulnerable like the Corinthians and like the people on Maple Street? To consider that, it might be helpful to think about a few places where we might encounter these kinds of exaggerated false accusations and how we often respond. One discouraging place that they come up often is in our churches at a denominational level. These kinds of things, of course, come up in every denomination. I, of course, know what comes up in the PCA more than I know about others, and so it's easier for me to speak about that. At this past General Assembly, Mark Dalby, the president of Covenant Theological Seminary, had to, in a way, confront the assembly about exaggerated false accusations that were being made against it, against the seminary. The occasion for the accusations was a conference on homosexuality and other related issues, which was being held by a PCA church in St. Louis a conference which one covenant professor was giving a talk at. Some of the PCA had declared that the real goal of this conference was to push the PCA closer to accepting homosexual practices. Accusations also emerged that Covenant Seminary had a significant role in that agenda, and accusations online began to grow. The accusations on blogs and social media grew to the point where Covenant needed to issue a clarifying statement reaffirming what they'd said repeatedly about their their beliefs, and then Dr. Dowley had to speak on the issue at General Assembly. Now, I'm of course not as well versed on the issues involved in this debate as some are, but it's been a topic I've been interested in for some time, that I've read on, that I've had conversations on with those involved, and so I think I have something of a framework for them. And from my reading and conversations, it appears that both those at Covenant and their accusers agree that homosexual behavior is wrong. Both believe that homosexual lust is wrong. Both believe that same-sex attraction needs to be mortified. I might ask, then, where they disagree. From what I've seen to this point, there are three major areas where the actual disagreement is. First, if I understand them correctly, those associated with the conference in St. Louis see uh, see same-sex attraction as a broken trait, but one that's not necessarily inherently sinful so long as it's not combined with lustful thoughts or outward actions. In other words, they treat the root of the attraction as something more like temptation, something to be cautious of, something to be on guard about, but something that's not in itself a sin if no action is taken. Those who accuse them think the attraction itself is a sin. 
rather than something like a temptation. That's the first major disagreement that they have. The second is what kind of language is acceptable for Christians to use when they describe same-sex attraction. And the third seems to be the shape that celibate same-sex friendships should take for Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. Those are the three of the issues as I understand them. Now, those issues are important. They matter. They're things that we need to be talking about. But as far as I can tell, neither view seems to be promoting same-sex behaviors or lusts. And their claim that they are, any claim that they are, any claim that they're trying to push the PCA towards homosexuality seems to me, at least, to be a form of exaggerated false accusations. Perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps there's something that I'm missing. But our text tonight should at least open us up to the possibility that that is what's going on in these kinds of debates. Maybe as accusations fly, we're acting like people on Maple Street, ignoring the real threats to the church while accusing each other of being monsters. It's possible that I'm prone to such suspicions of that, that that's what's going on because of what I've seen and heard in the past. Eleven years ago, the big debate in the PCA was over what's called the Federal Vision. War seemed to be breaking out as many claimed that the Federal Vision was going to destroy the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Such accusations were leveled at, for example, my pastor in St. Louis. They were also leveled at a number of theologians I had been reading. At this point, 11 years later, and well before that, it's all died down. No one seems to talk about it much anymore. My doctrine of justification by faith alone, as far as I can tell, is still intact, and as far as I know, it is for all the other men I know who are actually accused in these things. And so if nothing came of all of that, we might ask what happened that caused that fight to erupt 11 years ago. It would appear that what got us to that place was, again, exaggerated false accusations. And Dr. Collins, a professor at Covenant Seminary with roots, of course, in our congregation, has spoken to us as students many times about how the same thing happened eight years before that, over the doctrine of creation as people claimed that the doctrine of inerrancy was at stake over some of the views that were endorsed by a study committee, which he was involved with. But the report went out, many of the views it endorsed are held, and it doesn't seem that inerrancy has been lost yet. It once again seems to be a pattern of exaggerated false accusations. These are just a few of the examples within our little denominational circle of what happens in most churches, in many churches, many denominations. But what do we do with this? What does our text encourage us to do with these patterns? Most of us here tonight are not movers and shakers in the denomination, and so what are we to do when we hear of such things, when someone shares with us a story like this in person or on Facebook about the next big theological threat? What does it look like for us to follow Paul's examples as we deal with these things instead of the Corinthians? Let me suggest three things. First, we're reminded in our text that we need to remember that Satan can use false accusations of heresy maybe just as easily as he can use actual heresy to attack the church. We need to be wary of both. We need to remember that both are threats, and so we need to be careful in how we approach such claims. Second, we need to remember that Satan is actively trying to recruit us as his unintentional servants. And it's easy to enter his service without realizing it. It's easy to repeat an unsubstantiated accusation. 
But we need to be thoughtful about whose goals we might be serving when we do that. Third, we need to remember that we are each called to seek both the purity and the peace of the church. In fact, if you're a member here, you made a vow to do that. It's the last membership vow of the five that you took. Of course, we need to be on guard against false teaching that damages the purity of the church. But we also need to be on guard to defend its peace against things like exaggerated false accusations. That is a little bit of what it looks like at a denominational level. And there are, along with that, some parallels in how we relate to the broader church beyond our denomination and beyond the Reformed world. From church to church and denomination to denomination, there are real differences. There are, of course, reasons why I'm a Presbyterian in the PCA and not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. But still we struggle with the tendency to let disagreements and misunderstandings between denominations turn into something exaggerated, turn into a form of false accusations. Satan delights in the fragmentation of the modern church. And the more he can make us his unintentional servants, the more he can sow distrust so that each denomination looks at the others with suspicion, like the neighbors do on Maple Street, then the happier he is and the easier it is for him to do damage to the church at large. But even as we say all that, these patterns, of course, don't just apply to churches. They apply in our personal lives as well. Because, I think, for most of you at least, you know that with certain people, you have this tendency. You have this habit with certain individuals of interpreting whatever they say and do in the worst possible light. Of speculating about the sinister motives behind what they're doing. Of assuming what their selfish goals must be for what they've done. I know that there are people that I've struggled with doing this towards, even some who I might struggle with still today, I wonder if you struggle sometimes with that as well. Or if it's just me who has this problem. It can become an issue that shows up in friendships and acquaintances. It's something that can show up with coworkers or bosses. It is a common thing, it seems, between parents and children, unfortunately. And far too often it rears its head in the midst of conflicts between husbands and wives. We see a quirk, confusing action, something minor that we disagree with, and before we know it, we've basically decided that the other person is a monster. We act not that differently from the people on Maple Street, but what makes it even more impressive is that we do the whole thing on our own, in our heads. Our text tonight is telling us that when we do that, we're making ourselves unwitting servants of Satan. We're offering ourselves as his instruments. Whether we make those accusations in our heads, spread our accusations through gossip, or declare our accusations openly. And so where do you struggle with this? Where is this a problem for you? And again, do you guard yourself as Paul does? Do you consider that rather than the other person being the monster, perhaps by your accusations you are the one who is acting as the monster? Do you remember that Satan's forces may be actively recruiting you in that moment when you're tempted to exaggerate something into a false accusation? Do you remember Christ's call in your life to love others and to stand for what is true? So you think of these different ways that this applies, let me mention one more, one other area for us to consider this. Well, our text tonight applies to denominations, as I mentioned. While it's 
applies to relationships between denominations and it has application for individuals and relationships between individuals. While it's relevant in all these ways, it's important for us to remember that in its original context, its focus is on a local church, a local congregation. And as we consider our own local congregation, we would do well here to follow Paul's example and to guard our hearts against the recruitment techniques of Satan. We've gone through some recent transitions. We're facing another one somewhere on the horizon. It's natural to be nervous. There's a lot that we don't know about the future. There's a lot that we can't control. But as you see with the Corinthians, and as we see with the people on Maple Street, fear and a sense of lacking control can make us easy prey for Satan's recruitment. We find ourselves drawn toward the kind of suspicious thinking that leads to exaggerating false accusations. We find ourselves ready to be suspicious and ready to accuse. Suspicious maybe of the ministers or suspicious of the elders, suspicious of other leaders, suspicious of individuals within the congregation, suspicious of certain groups in the congregation, and so on. And suspicion then turns into interpreting everything in the worst light, which grows into reading motives into our skewed interpretations, and then we start to accuse. Maybe only in our hearts, but maybe also with our words. Gossip at first, maybe, and then perhaps open statements as well. Each of us needs to recognize that in the upcoming seasons of our season of our church, when we're confronted, when we're confused by something, when we're worried about something, or when we simply disagree with something, Satan's forces will be there to try to recruit us. They already have been. They almost always are, and will continue to be true in the future. They'll try to turn any fear or confusion or disagreement into something more. They'll try to make us into accusers. They'll try to get us to inflate what is actually there into something more, into an exaggerated accusation. They'll try to make us like the accusing false teachers in Corinth or the accusing neighbors on Maple Street. So the question is, are we anticipating that? Do you acknowledge that such temptations are a part of your life now and will come in the future? Are you preparing for them? Do you see your need to slow your thoughts and fears down in order to listen to the words of others and to hear that maybe you simply misunderstood them? Are you open to the possibility that a disagreement, even one that might be real and which you care about, still might not be a matter of life or death? Are you really ready to love people who frustrate you and to work for the peace of the church as well as its purity? Paul appears to have prepared for the temptations towards accusation that the devil was going to bring his way. Our calling is to do the same. As Christians in this time and place, we face real challenges, of course, and as members of this church in life, we are facing challenges ahead. We need to focus on the real challenges, the real threats, and not let Satan recruit us into fighting those who should be our allies. One final thought on all of this. There should actually be an encouragement at the bottom of everything that we've talked about. Because of what we've said and what we've drawn from 2 Corinthians 11, in the first 15 verses, if all of that is true, then it would seem that Satan is spending a lot of energy trying to do damage to the church. 
The fact that powerful spiritual beings have devoted themselves to attacking the church on both the global level and also on the local level, that should remind us of just what a precious and powerful gift the church really is. She is our spiritual mother. She nurtures and she cares for us. We should love her as a gift from God, and that love should help motivate us as we fight these temptations. That's what motivated Paul. Paul put up with a lot from the church in Corinth, and you might sometimes wonder why. Why did he do it? He did it, of course, on one level to serve Christ, but as we read his letters, it's clear that it's not just some sense of duty that motivated him. In verse 11 of our text, Paul seems to shout at the church in Corinth about his love for them. He seems to express his frustration that they would ever doubt that. Because Paul loved that church. Despite its shortcomings, he also saw its beauty. The church, whether we think of it on a denominational level, on a global scale, if we think of it in terms of the interpersonal relationships within it, or our particular congregation, the church is a precious and powerful gift. And if Satan thinks that she is worth attacking, we can know that she must be worth defending. And so let us love her and love one another, guarding against the exaggerated false accusations that we are far too prone to, identifying the real threats, and lovingly working together to advance Christ's kingdom. And as we do so, let us remember Christ's promise to his church. He promises that he will never leave her nor forsake her. And he promises that the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Amen.